Greetings, dysfunctionals. This episode is being hosted by me, Alex Tosada. I am here with Dr. Ernesto to talk with some badass Latinas who are fighting deeply and involved in the fight for their children's education. Being alive today and dealing with the challenges of surviving is nothing new to women of color. As organizers, advocates, activists, whatever you want to call them, the women on the show today in their everyday lives are providing guidance, support, and a voice for the children and families in our community. These women are in the fight for our equity and our school system to provide the services that our children and families deserve. With all the myriad channels of information that exist today, stories of brown women and what makes them keep going need to be told and they need to be told in their own voices. This podcast is one of the ways that we need to be sharing and elevating the narrative of fierce, unrelenting warriors. In searching for podcasts about Latinas from Latinas, the pickings are truly slim. Rest assured, here at the Reality Dysfunction, our commitment is to the everyday. These are not Peloton buying, Lululemon wearing soccer moms. Resisting is persisting is what mommies are all about. Let's welcome Naomi Peña, Laila Mejia, and Consuelo Frausto Lopez. So I wanted to hear a little bit from each of you how you got to this level. Like, what is it that initially got you started? And then what keeps you going? Who wanted to start? Lila? Okay. Uh, what got me started? What keeps me going? I think what got me started was I'm a mom of six, single parent. And I was having some issues at one of my kids' schools and I didn't know really how to navigate and I felt like nobody was there to support me. And pretty much the principal, because I was not aware of things, the principal kind of did something completely illegal. And it was after that that I was like, okay, I'm not gonna be this pendeja where you assume that because I'm a mother with six that I don't know my rights and I don't know things. And I was like, all right, I'm queen of being a Google lawyer. So I just started just clicking away. And I heard of a community education council. And I was like, who are these people? I'm going to get involved. <laughs> and so when I first tried to go on, of course, I didn't get on. But, you know, um, I wanted to be more involved. And I didn't really know an outlet in my neighborhood and how that besides a PTA and not all PTAs are functional. And I continue to advocate because I realize that there are a lot of parents who don't know. Um, you know, my stories are similar to Naomi, born and raised in the projects. We're still in the Lower East Side. We haven't left. Um, so I still communicate with a lot of those families from the projects. And I just feel like there is a lack of communication going on. And so I feel as someone who advocates, but is still from my community, it's my job to continue doing what I do and bring others aboard and help other parents, whoever feel like, you know, I think a lot of times parents don't feel like they have that support. And so a lot of the times I'm always promoting, I'm always on social media, I'm always fighting with everybody um, to let parents know that we do have a voice and we can do it. And just because you have one or six or eight kids, you have time to do this because your voice matters. So that's why I do this. Yeah, thanks. And Naomi, what about you? Um, similar to Lila, I'm born and raised in my community in Lower East Side, um, product of public housing. Um, I had, um, very early on, my mother is from Puerto Rico, my dad's from Dominican Republic, and at the time, I was an 80s baby, New York City public schools were not in the best shape, so my father, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, um, my father, who ha was a busboy in the now- no longer existing hotel um, would pay for Catholic school. So I'm a product of Catholic school. I went to Catholic school until 12th grade. And um, he, like, it was very much invested in me. Like, you need to invest in education because we don't have money for you. And they never did. It was understood, like, this is the only way you're going to leave here. And the only way you're going to do is proud. Even after my father died when I was eight, um, his social security check always covered my monthly tuition for school. So he paid for my tuition beyond the grave, I say, until 12th grade. I got involved because I have four kids. And um, my youngest is actually, um, my oldest at the time, uh, recent, got like an IEP, which is an individualized education plan, because he was a struggling learner. 
And I went down the deep rabbit hole of um, figuring out that the basic necessities that he needed for education was going to require for me to fight tooth and nail to get because the way the system is built is they will give you what you need, but don't ask for too much because you're not going to get anything extra. I went ahead and, and got invested in that. And then I had a second child. And then I quickly went to the same situation with him when I needed an IEP for him. Out of frustration, I went to a different school setting for him. And I, my older son graduated and my second child, I took him to a school where um, the, the teacher, the principal, was actually a retired uh, superintendent from Brooklyn. And she was Latina. And like, I, to this day, I consider her my mentor because she was all about it. She was, she would give me background information and what I need to be doing and how to do it. And she said, Naomi, you'll be really good on the CEC. And I was like, what is CEC? What are you talking about? She goes, you don't understand. The CEC is a body of parents who get elected and they can do these you know, they have this advocacy. You'll be so good at it. And I was like, all right, lady, whatever. I'll apply. I don't know what you're getting at. So I applied and I got on. And I was really, I was flabbergasted that I even got on because the way it works is PTA presidents, secretaries, and treasurers from all D1, all the local schools vote you in. And I was like, I don't know how this is going to work out. So I, I got on. And at the time there was, um, Lisa Donlin, who is the long-term, long-standing president of the CEC for a long time. I mean, years and years and years. I call her the Madrina of District 1. Um, she was this little white lady who was fierce. And she still is fierce. Like, she was, I laugh at her, and I go, you were, um, you are a colored woman trapped in a white woman's body. Because she was advocating for our black and brown children before it became cool to advocate for our black and brown children. And, you know, I just sit, sit back and I watched and I listened and I took notes. And if I didn't understand something, I, I figured it out and I asked questions and I did research. And ultimately, in 2015, I was then elected president. And... Um, it's different when you're observing someone leading to having to lead. I think as women and often Latina women, we're often chastised into a role and we're often told you're not good enough and we doubt ourselves and we double guess ourselves. Then we understand that when we're in the meeting room with people who are automatically discounting us, you have to bring it. So I ultimately uh, became, I'm still president and I, lead with that mentality that I'm sitting across people who don't like me and they often don't. But I also know that these people have to meet with me because they know I command a respect in this community. And oftentimes they will test my patience and test my intelligence, but I make it fully understandable that I absolutely know what I'm talking about and I can back it up. That's what drives me because I, I don't like being dismissed and I certainly don't like feeling like I, I'm beneath anyone else. I have seen the both of you <laughs> tangle and go toe-to-toe -to -toe with people so I can definitely attest to that and so we have Consuelo Frausto Lopez who just joined us Consuelo can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in education reform or advocacy in in your school district yes hi everyone so I'm Consuelo uh, I've lived in I was born in Michigan Jackson Michigan I had some pretty defining moments when I was growing up one of them being I guess the most defining moment being uh, when I graduated high school. I was admitted to Michigan State as part of an affirmative action program. It was called, I think it was called CAP, but I don't remember what it, what it stood for. But I know it was an affirmative action program. And had I not, had I not been accepted through that, I, you know, if it was today or whatever requirements are today, I probably would never have gotten to college, at least not right to a four-year. At the time when I started college, like some of you know, you know, I was 18 and I had a three-year-old uh, little boy who also had ADHD. So when he started school, he had ADHD. And so there was always those issues of me learning about his ADHD and having to become educated myself at such a young age, but then also having to educate his teachers about how to work with him. 
And so right from the get-go, you know, I graduated from Michigan State with a bachelor's in elementary education. In 1997, I, I came, I moved to California. I'm in, I live in Southern California. And so I've been teaching since 1997. So it took me at about 22 years. Along the way, because my son, who's now 33, he always struggled with his ADHD. And I was always, you know, and now by this time, I was already working. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the education system, in the public school system where he attended. So, you know, I was always, I've always been a big advocate of living in the community where I work. And so I still, I still do to this day. When he was a senior, I think, no, 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 it wasn't until he went, he went to um, a community college deputy, graduated. So that's when I learned about 504s. So he got put on a 504 for his ADHD and everything. I mean, it was just great timing. This community college that he went to in our area, they were super supportive. I mean, they they literally walked him through applying to a four-year university. They, I mean, they just gave so many services. And so again, you know, here I am working in the system, learning all of these things. And of course, you know, like many of you, you're wanting to give back to the back to the community as well by um, teaching our parents, just, you know, I worked, when I first started working in education, many of our parents were um, immigrants who had a minimal education. Like many did not, did not graduate high school from their native country. Me and my husband, because he's a teacher too, I mean, so that was just a big role for us, educating parents. This is how the system works in the United States. This is what you have to do. So we're always we're always playing these little advocates in the back. Oh, okay. So if this is happening, go tell the principal this, but don't tell him I said, you know. <laughs> and and it always, and it worked really. It really worked. But, but that's another interesting twist because since then, since then when I first started teaching back in 1997, and you move forward ten years from that, you know, 2007, there started to be a lot of demographic shifts. Like now or back in like 2007, we started seeing more and more families that were immigrants, um, but they were educated in their native. So they had a whole different skill set. It's, it's been an interesting journey. There's like many ways I can take, take the conversation, but currently what I'm doing is I'm an assistant administrator for instructional improvement. So basically our city, our district where we work created these administrative roles, but we have a focus, and it's an elementary study, but we have a, a focus on instruction. So mainly, su- you know, supporting teachers and interpreting the data, what to do with it, you know, how to improve. I work with, a, so I guess I'm very involved with the English language learners, and again, advocacy has never, never gone away, you know, making sure, you know, I'm telling the parents, okay, this program that you guys are a part of with English language learners, they're not getting enough funds. This is what you need to do when the principal comes and talks to you in a meeting. Um, she's going to try to out-talk you, talk really fast and say everything's great, and you're going to want to agree because it sounds like a good spiel, but you need to make sure you're asking questions and you're saying, well, what does the data show? And what, what, you know, what are you doing to service my child? And at the same time, I also work with a really great group of special education teachers at my, at my site. One's our school psychologist. And when I first started working at that school, oh, and I got appointed to that school. This position got appointed to those schools that were the worst performing schools. When I got to that school, you know, they would have, they have a process called a student study team, you know, which is the first intervention process that happens outside of the classroom. But their protocol was to put kids directly into special education in a heartbeat. One of my big jobs that I've been doing over the past three years, one of my work that I'm focusing on is making, um, we're, we're not trying to put people right into special education, but rather see what services are being done, what services are being provided first in the classroom and what kind of meetings are happening with the parents to, to educate them so that we can help kids before they're referred to special education, which sometimes, you know, once they're there, then everyone sometimes thinks they can Thanks. So I wanted to go back to Lila. 
and ask, how do you balance all of it? I mean, like, I know you say just very <laughs> off the cuff, I have six kids, but how do you then juggle work, your kids, running around with meetings with elected officials, um, supporting your own children, hearing what's happening in the neighborhood, right? Because not only do you, because I hear you, I hear you advocating not just for students in schools, but students or families in housing who are having issues or families who are having issues with like tenant rights and things. So how, how, are you, how do you balance all of that on a daily basis, especially now when we're all on lockdown? Um, it's, it's difficult. Um, and I think that's one question that everyone asks, how do you do it? Um, I have a lot of energy and I think a lot of how I'm able to balance is my passion for community. Um, and so you have to be disciplined in managing your time and making sure that you're having time for your children, making sure you have time for community. And then more importantly, because we always forget making time for ourselves, which I still lack in doing, right? Like I'm trying to save the world, but who's saving this vessel, right? right. I can admit that I don't always do a hundred when it comes to what makes Lila happy. Um, and I struggle, it's a struggle. I always joke with people a lot and I'm like, oh, I have wine connected to my veins. <laughs> I do make sure to like have that balance where I, I, I do, you drink at night just to have that glass of wine. And I think it's all about your priorities um, and, and making sure that you're balancing everything equally. I also involve my children in my activism. So when we've done rallies against Black Lives Matter, my little kids are right there. They don't know what the hell's going on, but they're there with their little signs. They're marching, right? Yeah, the climate march. Like I bring my children into what I do because that's the only way that I'm able to. Do I cook a meal every night? Absolutely not. Is my house clean? 90% of the time it is. But I, I try not to do meetings so that I'm cleaning, I'm cooking, I'm washing clothes. I'm doing that because I know that during the week, Superwoman is here. And I have to be able to. So with everything being home now, it's very hard for me. I'm still, but I still volunteer on Fridays. So I feed folks. I'm out there. I'm trying to connect. I think this whole quarantine thing is really difficult for activists who like to be on the ground. Um, I find it so challenging, um, but it's also allowing me to reconnect with myself and say, okay, what are the goals that we want to do for ourselves? Where are we going, Lila? But I really can't wait for all this is over so that I can just put my cape back on and start helping community. Yeah. Yeah. So like New York, New York city is like that whole educational system there that's like the biggest one in the country that's my understanding i mean how how is it how have the last two weeks been in terms of navigating advocacy because i mean it's really clear all over the country that people in power right whether they they mean to be villainous or not are using this as a moment to like really kind of consolidate uh, powers, particularly like around surveillance and all kinds of stuff. How has that kind of come down in NYC? Because y'all are like in it, right? Like it's happening right there, right now. I mean, I'll, I'll start, Naomi. I think my biggest thing with what's going on is that this virtual remote learning is not equitable for everyone. And whenever I am out fighting in the trenches, it's my black and brown people that I consider, right? So even though I'm having difficulties with myself navigating that system, my concern is families who have ACS cases, families who live in shelters, families who don't have the best living home conditions, and school is their, 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 their safe zone. What happens to those children, right? And what's gonna happen next year? Do these children repeat the grades? I think, and this is my personal opinion, I think the Board of Education has done a horrible job in supporting parents during this, this new thing that we're doing and supporting teachers. And I have to say the teachers were kind of thrown into this and there's some teachers who are doing an excellent job, but then there's some teachers who are still navigating because they have their families that they have to deal with and then be a teacher. Um, I am not 
I'm scared about what this is going to look like. Um, I'm scared for our children, my children, the children that I see playing basketball all day outside. They should be home. I'm just worried. And Naomi, take over if you can. One of the biggest struggles that we've had as the largest school system in the country is that it's all controlled by one person, which is the mayor. How he got that power is a whole nother conversation for a whole nother podcast, I guess. But it really eliminates the local voice of the parent that's on the ground. Parents like me who live here, who have my kids here, um, who work in a city, I know immediately through the people that I personally engage with or I've grown up with and know of me, I know their struggles and I firsthand and I can communicate that. But the problem is, is that because this is the system in New York City where, you know, we're ex super expensive and it's hard to live here, the majority of our principals don't live in New York City. Right. And just to give a little background about New York City schools, right, we have 1.1 million kids in our school systems, right? Somewhere between like 70, 75 percent of those kids live below the poverty line. 75,000 in shelters. Right. Who are home, homeless kids. In this environment, that's who we're talking about that is falling behind. And that's like two-thirds of the school population. And in this environment, I mean, that's bad, we, right? We take for but, granted that but that's everybody... normal. Right. And like... We've allowed, sorry. And we've allowed it to be normal. And right. One of the things that, that I tweeted out back on March 19th is I tweeted out, after we all survive this pandemic, we all need to take a long and hard look at the inequalities that exist in New York City and in this country. This will highlight, and it already is, how offensive it is to live in the city of excess while we have lots of families to live without. Yeah. It got a lot of traction. Um, it got tweeted a whole bunch of times, liked a whole hundred times. But like at the end of the day, I, it's really, I have a burning anger towards injustice. And when I see it, I have to do something about it because I firmly believe that we are judged by the deeds that we do in this lifetime. And if you have the power or the moment to undo something that is vastly unjust, I feel we have an obligation to do that. In this structure where we're all home, you know, by no choice of our own, we're all home because we all want to be safe and we want to keep people families safe. It's extremely hard to navigate a system that is literally built not for us. It's literally built to continue to suppress people of color, people of less education, people with less means, and, and allowing to uplift those who can navigate the system. Because it's extremely difficult. When you have one guy that's running the school system, transparency always is not 100%. Hearing voice, vocal voices like myself is often looked down upon. And we often are looked at as the you know the, the people that stir the pot a little too much and ask too many questions and probably a little too knowledgeable for their own good what i've done on the ground is i'm here everyone knows who i am for the most part everyone has my email they text me they hit me up on social media so i've been able to troubleshoot little by little families that have issues one family hit me up that they have a school issued laptop that has administrative locks on it so when she tried to join a Zoom for her daughter's call, it's locked. She can't download the app. Yeah. So I then have to navigate. And she missed the like she missed the class. Her daughter was upset. She was upset. So I had to like put her in contact, make a whole bunch of phone calls. But that took me literally like an hour of my life. Yeah. That I should be using it to instruct my own kids yeah. on the work that they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. I mean, I know that immigration is an issue on the East Coast. I, I know that it is. I mean, we don't necessarily think of it the same way as like when we think about the Southwest or Los Angeles or, or Texas, or I mean, even Arizona where I'm at. But I mean, I'm just wondering how this is really impacting, um, at least to, to the extent of your knowledge and experience, undocumented families in the area that you're at. Because I mean, New York is being hit really hard, but where you're at in the greater Los Angeles area is also, I mean, that's, it's no joke what's going on over there. Yeah, well, even before this, we saw a decline in the number of students who 
were probably undocumented because mm. of the political climate that was happening with deportation. Honestly, we did. I, I don't even know where where they went. You know, maybe they went back home. But yeah. we did see a significant decline. And even uh, we have a on our campus, we have a community wellness center that provides lots of services. Our school benefits the most from it, but it's for the community. When it came to things like hotspots, if a parent wanted to come get a hotspot, they could, but they had to attend a 30-minute class. Like, this is how you use it, and this is what it's for. But that that right there, any of those extra services like that, um, I know a lot of our undocumented families were reluctant. The way we would kind of work around that is I would just say, well, just, you know what, give me the PowerPoint. Tell me what I need to say. I'll just, I'll just do that for them. Right. What's really, I think, for us is what I see affecting the community is that the wellness center is closed because I'm still working. I was off this week because it was, it was, this week was my, or last week was my non-contract day. So they honored that. But other than that, I have been going to work from like 10 to 2 and, you know, helping like give out the school lunches and, and doing right there um, what one of the participants said was like, parents are calling in and I'm like an IT person. I'm like, okay, yeah. put your computer in front of you. Let me tell you what you're going to do. Just those extra resources that were being offered in the community. I mean, the lunches are great, but they're just for kids. That's been a struggle for a lot of people. Yeah. One of the things that, that Consuelo said earlier, and I would really love to hear Naomi and Lila talk about their, their experience, you know, like she was talking about how, when she was coaching some of these parents to go in and talk to the principal and she was saying, Oh, that they're going to come in here and they're going to try to fast talk you and like tell you all (laughs) these things and, and get you to agree with it. What I'm wondering as you know, one organizer to another, do you remember that moment? Like when you realize they're trying to like talk me out of this or they're trying to like fast talk me or whatever, you know, even more than that, like, how did that really shift your view of authority or like school? You know what I'm saying? Because we think of it as these places that are supposed to be meritorious and, you know, built on equity and all that. But it's not true. We accept that until this moment when it when it's revealed to us that it isn't that way. And so I'm just I'm really fascinated in, in hearing what you all think about that or when that moment was for you. I will tell you sort of the one pivotal moment that I remember and ignited a whole lot of fire was one time my oldest we were in an IEP meeting in an IEP meeting it's a mandatory meeting it's a legal binding document that will add has to adhere to the child's education so my son has dyslexia and ADHD so there they create a roadmap of what he would need to be a successful student. Part of the IEP meeting, the parent has to be there. The two sort of specialist teachers have to be there. So his speech um, and his OT with, uh, occupational therapist was there and the guidance counselor was there and we were all talking. So the first snafu that happened was I got, now I've been a parent now for almost 20 years. And by then my youngest was in the middle school. So I've been doing this quite a long time. So I already knew what the protocol is. Um, And I remember I got the paper, the official notice that he had an IEP meeting in the mail and I got it and it, it said it it was a date that passed. Mm. And I was like, this is interesting. And I called this guidance counselor and she finally called me back and she's like, Oh yeah, well you weren't there. So we went ahead and had the meeting without you and you're going to get the IEP in the mail. And I was like, um, absolutely not. That is illegal. And you're not going to have a meeting without me because I am going to contest the whole entire document. So you go ahead and figure out how you want to do that. But it's in your best interest to have a meeting with me. She's like, all right, fine. When do you want to meet? So she, we had a meeting the next, when, whenever it was. I had already had sort of a heads up through someone that was providing support through my son in the outside nonprofit. There are promotional criterias at the back of the document that said if the child meets whatever percentage of threshold of learning, they are promoted. So because the child struggles, my son was at an 80% promotional requirement. So if he met at least 80% of 
what was expected of him, he would be promoted to the next grade. So she, she goes through the whole entire document. There was questionable things on it. But then when we get to the back, the signature page, which is also the promotional requirement portion of the document, she goes, okay, so we're done. You can sign it. And I was like, no, there is a top section about his promotional requirement. Why is that blank? She says, well, I don't personally believe that children should have promotional requirements on their IEPs. So we took it out. Okay, just real quick. Could you explain for everybody exactly what a promotional requirement is? I think that's, that's pretty important right now. When a child has an IEP, I don't know how it works in other states, but in New York, the last page or the second to last page, there's a paragraph that goes in depth on what metrics the child needs to meet in the academic school year to be promoted to the next school year. Right. But for a child that is fine, doesn't have an IEP, they're expected to know a certain number of things. For a child that has an IEP, a child like my, my son, who's a struggling reader, when you struggle to read, that means there are everything that involves reading, he's going to struggle with. So if you're doing math and math problems, that's going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. If you're in social studies required to read out loud, that's going to be a problem. So what they do is they assess based on his skills and they sort of modify it. They also understand that a child needs to be pushed. So let's say if he's meeting 80% of his requirements, let's push it to 80, 85 or 90. So that way he can work towards pushing himself a little bit more, but also meeting the requirements to graduate. At the time, I think he had 80% that he needed to meet and she went ahead and just abolished it. So if it gets abolished, that means my your child is not being held to a standard like everyone else in the classroom. Right. And if your child struggles with certain disabilities, it's understood that there is no way that they're going to be at the same level as everyone else that right. doesn't have an IEP. So I went ahead and I said, well, that's, I know that's your personal opinion, but as a professional, and I had my old IEP with me, I was like, this is what the requirement was. And she's like, well, that's what his elementary school had. And I'm not in support of that. And I looked at his two teachers who clearly were in agreement with me. And I said to her, well, since you firmly believe that this is not something that he needs, and I do, we're not in agreement here. And we can do one of two things. We can stay here for the next next hours. We can spend all day doing this because I took the day off. And we can stay here and debate the merits of what your personal opinion is versus mine. Or you can go ahead because what I later discovered is that that required, in order to have that requirement, she needed to do additional assessments that she did not do. Uh... So she was like, well, and then that means we have to test him for this and this and this. And I said, well, then we, I'm going to ask that you do that. And she's like, she tried to continue to talk me down. And I was like, well, look, I can stay here all day. I'm going to stay here and tell you no until, until it's five o'clock in the afternoon. It was like one, or you can go ahead and do it. So the teachers chimed in because they also had a problem with the, results that she had taken they basically told him we don't know who this child is <laughs> based yeah. on the, the test scores that you have for him and she had no choice but to reassess him and we had to do another IEP meeting because also what they do is they say okay well we had this meeting now sign it I'm like I'm not doing that I'm not signing it until we're absolutely done with this assessment portion otherwise we can sit here all day so she finally came in she did the assessment but I walked out there livid because if she did that to me and I'm fully versed in the laws that my, that's applicable to my son, I can only imagine what they do to families who don't know any better. Just bulldoze them. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and us Latinos in general don't question authority. We, you know, we assume that teachers have the best interests. We assume that principals have the best interests of our child. And we never, ever question authority. I was so livid. I walked straight into the principal's office. I said, I need to speak to you. And I told them, I was like, don't, this is what she did to me. And I can only imagine what she's doing to other people. So I'm giving you a heads up. And if this happens again, like, we're not going to have a civil conversation. He was super supportive. He was like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I'm going to handle it. But 
that was the moment where I realized no one really cares about your child. They only care about how much work it takes for them to get to the answer. And if mm. they can cut corners and if they can just write off portions, they will absolutely do that. Yeah. And I just realized like, I can't, I cannot continue to do that. And I, I made myself available moving forward to other parents who had IEPs issues. And that's how like I, my name started floodgates in the community like Naomi she knows her IEPs like you need to have her in your meetings because you're allowed to bring a parent yeah. advocate with you yeah so my I had my niece ask me I had a couple of families and friends or if I couldn't be there I'll give them talking points um and so that's what sort of I realized like I need to use my powers for good <laughs> yeah. all right that's a that's great that's inspiring Lila I mean when when was when was your big reveal you're muted, girl. Okay. Hey. Um, hey. Jesus, my big reveal. I forget a lot of things. I think there was a lot of issues that, um, you know, I've been a part of. I really can't answer that. Because I have, like, small little victories. Sure. You know, in trying to 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 help assist. I think that. So once upon a time, I was a, ch- a charter school parent. And um, I didn't really, this was back when I thought charter schools was the best thing invented. And I was like, public schools, you're horrible. And we had an issue where we had a sinkhole in our playground. Um, And they kind of just patched it up and nothing happened. And they like beautified it again. But then what happened was that because, um, so just a brief history, the Lower East Side is built on marsh. So everything under us is you know and everything so during sandy we were flooded so what happened was they they reconstructed the school they did the playground and then it started to crack again it was around this time where some like maybe three or four parents were like wait a minute we just got this done and it's like slanted it's crazy it's crooked and then doing some research we found out that the school was well the playground is under a, a building so there's like six seven feet down so if that sinkhole opened again a kid could possibly die it's not like they're gonna fall you know they, we had at the time uh there's i think three or four schools in there and there was a, a a head start in there and so it was at that moment where i realized because we were trying to advocate with both all three school communities and our charter school principal kind of put a halt on that and was like you can't do that you can't talk talk to them you can't organize and through my navigating, I found out that they're supposed to have a, a system set up where the public school and the charter school parents are talking together and they're supposed to have these meetings. And I found out that the principal was having these meetings with the public school parents, but not with us. And Ooh. then during that time, <laughs> when we're advocating and I'm finding about construction school authority, I started realizing, you know, I'm looking at the public school parents and I'm like, wow, they're like really organized. And my principal was like well no as a pta you can't do this you can't do this you can't do this but i need money and i need money and i need you to fundraise 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 so it was like during that process where i was learning my voice i was learning that you know like naomi said um when someone says no we're like okay they said no and i'm like why are we accepting that like show me chancellor's regulations where it says i can't do this or i can't do that and then fast forward we had a lead incident and our school where um, all the schools in our community tested positive for lead but however when Manhattan Charter School the school that I was from they did not tell the parents till like three or four days later until I had to stir up some and then it was another backlash and then I noticed that my kids were kind of getting a little like targeted like oh your daughter was talking back okay my, my daughter is a chatterbox like we all knew this like why are you you know so it was just stuff like that that you know I have these aha moments where they want you to be vocal, but when it's vocal against them, then it's a problem. Yeah. So it's just little experiences like that, that I say that I'm really blessed that I've been able to, whenever there's parent issues, people ask me, people reach out to me and they, you know, ask, Hey, can you come sit in on this meeting? I have this issue going on. How can I help? So that's all, all victories for me. I think it's really fascinating. I think the whole part about how, like when people, tell us no, you know, we just say, okay. I think that it's amazing to me over the years 
having watched people learn how to advocate for themselves, but even more so when they really come to understand that rules aren't just about what you can't do. They're about what other people are responsible for. You know, when you really like figure that out, it just takes on a whole nother meaning. And I love to sit in meetings where people are doing what you all are doing and just watching the look of unrelenting agony that is going over the face of the people that are just, they're just like, we're going to actually have to do the work this time. Like we're not going to be able to soft sell it or sidestep it or pass it off to somebody else. I mean, we're going to have to actually do the work. And it's, um, I get a I kick out of that. When first meeting these women, <laughs> I would I sit on this board with them and like school construction authority has to come in and talk about what they're doing. The enrollment people from the DOE have to come in and talk. So all these like upper level administrators who are doing their thing within the New York City Department of Education have to come in and report out at what they're doing. And I see that look of dread <laughs> on their faces when it's Q&A time, right? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, and yeah. I have to commend you all on how, you know, I said it before, like you are relentless in your questioning, right? There's no stupid question. You you. You don't filter yourselves. You're really true to who you are in all aspects during these meetings. And I just, I love watching it. I do. <laughs> I think the biggest part is holding people accountable. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, a lot of these people have these roles that they applied and they're appointed or whatever, mm -hmm. and no one holds them accountable. Like if school construction authority is the authority that controls millions and millions of dollars in improvement work for our schools, when they show up, they know, like they do their presentation. And once they say, okay, who has questions, they sit down and like, okay, what are you going <laughs> to ask us? My biggest thing is I, any room I walk into, I make sure people know I'm there. I'm an equal opportunist hard hitter. I am not soft on people because, oh, I like them. No, like if, if you're my friend and you're responsible for decision-making, I am coming for you just as equally as if I, saw I didn't know. Sure. I remember there was a meeting not uh, like about a year and a half ago where um, we were in a room with the mayor of New York City and the chancellor and his team and all the presidents of all 35 districts. And we were in the room talking about policies and changes to laws. And at the time I had a really bad meeting with a group of people in the Department of Education, like really bad. Like my Apple watch was telling me to breathe. Like that's how <laughs> bad it was. Like I was taking cues from Apple Watch and I was walking out the room and I was like, deep breathe, deep breathe, Naomi, no flipping of the tables, like deep breathe. And I remember I was so annoyed by that because I felt like these people were purposely walking into my district, purposely talking down to me because they could, because they were never held accountable. Right. I remember walking into that meeting with the mayor and the chancellor and they were taking questions. And of course, the first person they picked was me. And I had a moment of like, I can ask a fluff question or I can put them all on the spot. And that's exactly what I did. I said, you are asking us because we are in these school boards and we don't get paid. Let, let that be 1000% known. We are not paid for our time. This is all time that's free. It's free away from our families, from our friends, from our social lives. You want us to do this work, but you have people within your administration that are purposely blocking us from getting the work done. So how do you want me to be effective? Mm -hmm. The room got, like, you could hear a pin drop. And I think that was the first time that someone held the mayor accountable and the chancellor accountable to the people that they have in their system that are supposed to work with us. And they, they never had someone do that. Long story short, we had several conversations about it, but at the end of the day, we need more of that. We need more people to stand up and not be afraid to say what's the truth because people will try to discredit you. I'm all for it. Twitter trolls are abundant. I can care less. At the end of the day, it doesn't bother me 
but understand that in the world that we're in, there are people, you're going to be a target regardless of what you do. If you do nothing, you're a target. If you do something, you're a target. So why not do something and, you know, have at it? Yeah. So last thoughts, right? Todd has always been this fire that has helped me. And Todd, you, I know I've told you this, like you helped me to find my political voice, not just my voice, but my political voice as a Latina, as a woman of color, as a Colombian woman, as an indigenous woman, right? All these things. And um, working now at a college, I work with students because what I want to do is bring other kids that look like me when I was trying to go to college. Like I'm all about, and you guys hear me at my meetings, right? I'm like, if you want to apply to go to college, like, let me know. We're, we'll work on it. We'll try. We'll try to figure something out. Right. And, and so it's, I think it's so important when we talk about what does it mean to be an organizer, an advocate, an activist, you know, people bandy these words around a lot. And sometimes there's no substance in it. So I think bringing Lila and Naomi and Consuelo on, I'm like, this is what it means. Like, these are the women that are the backbone who are providing the substance and the needed support in our community. So thank you, the three of you, for everything that you do. Yeah, I I just want to add to, um, I think it's really powerful to tell people, um, you don't need to go to college to be an advocate, right? Like, it starts with passion. And I find that a lot of times when I'm in spaces and people are like, oh, I don't have the courage. I don't know what you know. And I'm like, sis, it's not, it's, it's, it comes from the heart. It comes from passion. And I think that so many times, especially for a woman of color, we go into spaces and we're supposed to be quiet, right? And so when men speak, it's okay for men to speak. Let him be angry. He's the man. But when a woman of color does it, we're labeled, oh, you have your period? You're a bitch? Um, oh, um, angry black woman? No, absolutely not. I have a right to say this fair, right? My ancestors fought with this and that blood lineage is still in my, in my blood. You know, it's okay to go to these spaces and advocate. And I'm very big on always telling everyone, you have a voice. You just need to learn how to develop your voice. You can do this. It wasn't a job that I applied to. I mean, whether you want to call it an advocate, an organizer, I'm just passionate about One, I'm a mother. I'm passionate about my kids learning. And because I'm a mother, I'm a mother to your children as well, if you don't have a voice. So I say this to say, everyone has that voice. You need help developing it. There's a network of sisterhoods that will help you. Um, This is not like books that we read. This is experiences, learned experiences that got us to where we're at. So find your voice, queens. You all have a voice. And just continuing doing that thing. And you got to learn to, to kind of clean yourself in ways when people say, oh, you're just an angry Latina. No, absolutely not. I'm an educated Latina. And if you're educated like me, you would be passionate in what the society continues to do to our people. And you would want to change. Right. So I'll just leave that up there. I will follow up and just say, um, I think a lot of people choose not to get involved because it doesn't affect them. Um, A lot of people like to say, that's not my problem, that's your problem. And I think a lot of people just have a hard time stepping up and saying something because they're scared. They're scared of what can happen to them. This is literally the reason why systems are built the way they are, because it's all about dividing and conquering. So if you only have a small group of agitators, whatever you want to call them, you can manage them versus a whole nation of agitators. And that's what they're scared of. They're scared people of color having something to say because the system is not built for, it's, it's not built for people of color. It's built to continue to oppress people of color. And we can see that every day in the news, in the way policies are written, um, in the way structures are formed. And my argument to people, and I think we can definitely, I think this will be a great um, sort of topic to have is how does one find that voice and how do you start community organizing? How do you, how, what, what do you, what does it take to be an organizer? What does that mean? What does an activist mean? I mean, there's a very big difference between what I call Twitter, Twitter gangsters 
keyboard gangsters and actually people who are on the ground doing the work. You know, in the world of social media where people love, people judge their, their ability by a like and a retweet, that's a standard that they have. But the actual work is not done on social media. The actual work is done on the ground and connecting to people um, because those are the people that actually vote. And I think that's a larger discussion that should be had because people don't understand the power of their voice and the power of their vote. And, and it's, it's built that way intentionally to divide and conquer and keep people in their place. Compudantes. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good that's one. A good one. It is a good one. It's not an original, but it's still. <laughs> Consuelo, last thoughts? I feel like, you know, when I'm listening I'm listening to everyone. Um, I, I was reflecting a little bit about me helping others learn to advocate and me being the one who has to advocate. I guess more so right now, my role is helping people learn to advocate for themselves and for their groups and for their needs. In my little small world, the one little school that I work in, right? That I, that's really all I can think about right now. That's, that's what I do. It doesn't sound as large scale as what the other women are doing, like one person at a time, right? One group at a time. It's helping the booster club uh, learn how to navigate the system. And I'm, I guess for me, I've been in education for as long as I've, I've been in. One thing I've learned to identify, which I love, is when people are first learning to advocate for themselves. And typically, you know, I, like you guys said, I see the people who are real quiet. They don't say anything. And then I'll see the other people, some other people, women, so it's a mom, come in and they will tell somebody off. People who don't, who can't see that that is their beginning of advocating, that's how they start to advocate. If you don't nurture it, you have to nurture it. It's like, okay, you want to speak. So you know what? Let me work with you. Let me show you how, you know, how you can get what you want. Because if you don't have people like that in the system wanting to empower the woman, the moms that come in, then they can get brushed aside sometimes. Yeah. Because they, they don't know how to get past the being angry. That's all we have for today. My name is Alex Lozada, and this is The Reality Dysfunction. Until next time, we hope that you all stay home, stop smoking, and wash your hands.